Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life, and in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you, so the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com, or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to the former Ironman athlete Lucy Gossage about self-talk. Hi, Lucy. Hello. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure to have you on, aka the Duracell Bunny. That's a new name, isn't it? <laughs> I quite like that. I think that's 10 years old exactly two days ago, um, Facebook told me. How did you get Chris in that? Um, John Leverson, who's uh, the editor of Tri247, so the big triathlon website, I think he met me when I was just getting into triathlon and um, was struck by my non-stop talking, I think, and bouncing around after done doing a race. And um, yeah, he he gave it to me and it, it, it stuck um, all the way. So yeah, I and take do, it as a compliment. Do, it, yeah, it certainly meant as one. Well. And you do definitely have this propensity to sort of bounce around dancing and grinning when you're racing. Like you clearly love competing over mammoth distances 
Oh, I do, and I miss it. Um, I miss it so much I've actually entered a race. <laughs> oh, the comeback, um, I like it. Okay. No, it's not a comeback, but um, no, <laughs> I, I do. I I loved it so much, and, and that's why I got good at it, and that's why I um, carried on with it for so long. Also, you've been described as an expert in suffering. You suffer when you do an Ironman, but also you work as an oncologist, so you know you are around suffering in clearly more ways than one. Uh, I've never heard myself described as that, so that's a new one to me. But um, what I would say is that um, in Ironman, yeah, we suffer, but that's that's a choice, and and I remind myself that it's a choice, and 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 it's a privilege, and that makes the suffering to me. You know, it, it's you're suffering because you're getting the best out of yourselves. Mm. I always think it sounds quite trite, but seeing how my patients deal with with so much adversity, and uh, you know, every single person manages stuff that I just think I couldn't deal with but but humans do that's suffering and I think that can can be quite quite powerful inspiration for me and it's clearly affected your outlook and perspective and self-talk all sorts of things that we're going to dig into uh, by the way that expert in suffering that was the headline of an article I'll send it your way afterwards interesting um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you've also described Iron Man as a metaphor for life which is perfect because that's kind of the uh the way I try and uh, describe sport for the benefit of this podcast as well. So in what way do you think Ironman is a metaphor for life? I think the, the first time I used that was one of my friends and, and one of my really good friends and he was trying to qualify for the world championships and he just tried and it tried and it tried again. He kept going back and he kept failing and he kept going back and then he, then then eventually he did on his eighth race and it was just such a magical experience because it was my last world championship so we went out together and uh, yeah. But I, I guess it just sums up, um, you know, all the lessons that I've learned from triathlon are so translatable to, to normal life. Um, and it's about persistence and discovering yourself and pushing. Uh, that, yeah, it, it is a metaphor for life in so many ways. There's a lot I don't like about the organisation, but um, as a, a challenge, and that doesn't have to be Ironman, any, any kind of huge physical challenge that requires dedication over a, a long period of time, I think you learn a lot about yourself as a personality. And you say that oncology and Ironman are remarkably complementary. Yeah, do you know, I, I think I was, before triathlon, I was very much on a, a career ladder, climbing up it as quickly as possible, but not really thinking about where I where I wanted to go um, and where the ladder was taking me. And and then I, I moved to Cambridge to do a PhD. I, I wasn't seeing patients. I was stuck in a lab. I didn't really realise, didn't really know what I was doing, what the point of my PhD was. I felt like I had no purpose no job satisfaction and that's when training became training rather than exercising and and I started to get better at triathlon um but I think now looking back my time as a triathlete has helped me really reflect on what I want to do from life um and and I don't want to just be at the top of a ladder just because it's at the top I'd much rather be be lower down the ladder that I'm on and I you know I still work part-time I have lots of time to do other projects that I'm passionate about um I'm not just I don't say yes to stuff just because it's prestigious or it might look good I I only say yes to stuff that I really want to do and and that's I'm so happy that I've I've let myself come off that that stupid career ladder that that would never you know you, you never get the best out of yourself if you're doing something just because it's prestigious um you always get the best out of yourself you're doing something because because you really want to not just because you can you can um and and that's yeah I'm really happy that that triathlons taught me that I mean you're kind of talking about 
balance and understanding what makes you tick. So I guess that's what you're getting at there is understanding what makes you happy. So, you know, when you're when you're at school, most people are told to go to university and then, they, you know, there are certain universities and, and you do things because it's the best thing to do or because it pays more or because it's more prestigious. And, and I don't think that anyone who's ever done something because it pays more or because it's on paper. The best. You know, I went to Cambridge as an undergrad, but then I went back to Cambridge to do my PhD because it was the best place on paper, inverted commas, to do my PhD. And I... I didn't look into the project. So it, that that is never the right way to make a decision. Um, and you know, now people sometimes question why I still work part time, and I often get the answer. You know, I haven't got kids. Most people work part time because they've got kids, and that's kind of the the norm for working part time. Um, every now and then, I feel like I have to justify that decision. But actually, um, I know that when I'm in work, I'm I'm in work a hundred percent. And when I'm not in work, I've got time and energy to do. Other things that that make me happy, like riding my bicycle, but also I I hope has potential to impact more people, like my charity work and stuff. Um, and I listen. One of your big one of the things that has actually changed my um, the way I looked was in an interview. And I can't remember his name, but you did with a rugby player um, who was paralysed. Ed Jackson. Um, that's it. And um, he was talking about how he makes decisions about. Um, about how he manages his time. And I'd started working through COVID. I ended up working full-time just because they were they couldn't get a locum. And I, I said I'd work full-time. And I was cycling back from work on a Friday night. Um, and I was tired. And, and the last patient I'd seen, I hadn't asked the questions that I would normally have asked, partly because I knew they'd upset her and I couldn't touch her. And I didn't want... I realised this all reflecting. It wasn't conscious, but I didn't want her to cry and me have to watch with a mask and not be able to touch her. But also, it was five o'clock. I've been there five five days a week. You know, I've worked how many hours. I was just done with seeing people with cancer. And I cycled back. I felt really bad. I was like, I'm not the doctor that I want to be. And then I listened to this interview about how he, how you know, how he decided how to spend his time and intrinsically, you know, what made him happy, what benefited other people. And it's just clear as daylight. I was like, why would I ever work full time? All it does, it makes me an average doctor for five days, whereas I like to think I could be a really good doctor for three days and then do 5K your way and then do other things. And uh, it was just, yeah, it was like a light bulb. So I cycled home. I was like, there's no way once I've, you know, as soon as they've got this locum, there's no way I'm going to carry on. So it sounds like, you know, you realised you weren't getting the most out of your career for yourself as well and then not being able to give to your patients in, in that way. So it's just getting that balance right. Yeah, and not feel bad about not, you know, not working full time. Because I think there is still a norm that you work five days a week, even, you know, you make the decision, I, I I don't need lots of money. And so money doesn't make me happy. Time makes me happy. And doing things like 5K always makes me happy. Stuff like this makes me happy. Being in the hospital three days a week, I love it. Being in the hospital five days a week, it's just, it's too much for me. Um, and, and Ed's system was, um, was really helpful at, at helping me kind of clarify that. And I, I wonder if more people are going to be thinking that way because of what's gone on with coronavirus. Uh, has anyone been picking your brains about that decision and, and saying, you know, perhaps they're considering a similar thing? I hope so. So at the start of COVID, I was I was originally really really anxious and, and scared about what was going to happen in the hospitals. And but then I then I, I kind of had this hope that the world would change and everyone would. It's almost like everyone in the world has been told they've got cancer. Um, mm. And no one knows where they're going to be in six months. And that's a real opportunity to evaluate 
what you want from life. And I had this hope that everyone would would almost have that you've got cancer moment without having cancer and, and really change, you know, realise what's important to them. Um, I don't know whether that's, I'm sure it will have done for some people. Um, I think there's a, a natural habit to just creep back to, to normality, isn't there? But um, I think that is a real opportunity. And, and I, yeah, I like to think that people will, will change and, and realise who is important to them what's important to them and, and, and change their life going forwards to accommodate that. Let's go back because when you were a young buck, when you were a teenager, you um, came last in a cross-country race. So what was your belief around your athletic ability at that point? Oh, so I've reflected on this so much. And um, I, I, yeah, I, I was at, at school and I think it's one of the biggest things that I, I, I hope I can perhaps inspire kids that you shouldn't get yourself put in a, in a box a metaphorical box when you're when you're growing up so I was always the in inverted commas a clever kid at school I was never I wasn't like bad at, at sport I played tennis and netball and I, you know I was I was above average but I certainly wasn't athletic and um I did a little bit of running and I must have been reasonably good because I think I got selected for the like the level above the school so the into Grantham or whatever it was and I came last and um there might have been a million reasons why I came last but I didn't do coming last (laughs) and this is you know this is I've realized this 10 15 years down the line and and I didn't do that after that I came last I didn't do anything competitively um until I entered my triathlon first triathlon when I was 26 and you know at uni I did a bit of running um and just you know just running jogging whatever and and friends were like oh why don't you do a marathon there's no way I can do a marathon there's no way I can do a running race and someone's like you know why don't you do a pentathlon or something like I was like no I can't do it can't do it and I just I think that that coming last for me that was failing I'd I'd, you know deep down in my subconscious I'd failed at something and I wouldn't let Mm. myself try again and that's such a nice thing that triathlons taught me that I you, you often fail at stuff but actually that's what changes you as you as you go forward so failure is only failure if it stops you doing something again isn't it um but it's it's just really I think it's really sad in some ways that 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 coming last then impacted you know the it stopped me doing anything who knows what opportunities I might have enjoyed had I not been constrained by that the fact that I'd come last so I told myself that I wasn't a runner (laughs) yeah I'm interested to know what your thoughts are around confidence and arrogance because I know you've got some have had some pretty strongly held beliefs around arrogant behavior and how that then sort of impacted you as a competitor yeah so I think I I always really struggled to to distinguish between confidence and arrogance and I remember going out for dinner um just before the world champs with Lucy Charles who's now the you know one of the best triathletes in the world and at the time she was a um, an amateur um, and I was you know we went out for dinner and 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 she was she was so confident and mum came away mum mum loves Lucy now and they're, they're good friends but she said oh Lucy was quite arrogant um, and uh, I'd done a bit of work with Helen who's a sports psychologist friend and at that point I could I could distinguish between being she was just so confident in her abilities but um but but I still I still really struggle with being overtly confident um and backing myself and and I do think it's a it's a very fine line between 
being confident and you need to be confident um but also I really have this fear of, of coming across as arrogant which is kind of one of the things that I would absolutely hate anyone to ever think or ever say all oh, Lucy Gossage is really arrogant it would be like one of the worst things in my head that someone could ever ever say to me um but I did yeah I've done a, a lot of work around it and and realized that actually you do need to have confidence um and you can be confident without being arrogant did that impact your performances at all I know you've done like you said a lot of mental training with Helen and I've heard you talk about your beliefs as a competitor so sometimes sort of thinking oh you didn't feel necessarily you belonged amongst the absolute elite and were one time racing and, and there was a woman who you sort of held in really high regard and in your mind there was this narrative that there's no way I can I could beat her or no way I can overtake her. Uh, and then there was another time where you talked about you were aiming for the top 10 and there was someone else, Susie, I think was her yeah, name, yeah. who was um, roughly the same ability. And she she was, I'm going to want to aim for the top six or something like that. You came 10th and she came six. So I'm just interested, you know, between the relationship between between confidence and then how that plays out in terms of self-belief and the importance of belief as a competitor. Yeah, so, so the first um, the first story was actually my my one of my first pro races, and it was the day after I'd just gone part time at work, and it was in Ireland, and um, yeah, I was doing this race, and, and Rachel Joyce, who was she was one of the best in the world at the time, you know, I was I was literally a nobody, um, was racing, and, and obviously everyone was racing for second, and then I came off the bike, and um, the commentators were like, oh, this is a really close race. And I was thinking, what, you know, what's going on? There must be someone behind me. And then I, I saw Rachel was in transition and she was running out as I was coming in. And um, I was like, I, I remember it so I sat down, I was pretty, it was a really cold day, um, check it out, you know, put my shoes on. I was like, I'm going to come second, very close behind Rachel. And we still had a half marathon. And, you know, I I knew I was, I'd been running really well. Um but I just, you know, I was like, I'm going to come second really close behind her. That's amazing. And then we were running and I could see I was catching her. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you're, you're, you're going to come really close behind her. And this is halfway. And I, can't, I just remember coming up to her and, and, and almost I had, to, I had to consciously say, you are allowed to overtake her. Um, and, and I did, and I won. And the first thing that I did, she, you know, when she crossed the line, I, came, I went up to her and said, I'm sorry. And she was like, what are you sorry for? You had an amazing race. And, you know, I learned, I learned two things. One, that you can beat people who are on paper legends. And also I learned a lot about how to, to lose a race graciously. Um, and I've talked <laughs> a lot about that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, no, the, other, the other story is, again, it's, it's just in hindsight you realise it. So Susie and I were friends and we were, again, on paper identical and we'd raced um a few times and there'd always been one or two minutes between us and either I'd won or she'd won actually probably I had the edge in terms of you know on paper who's statistically um but yeah we were going to the world champs and and all I wanted was to be in the top 10 she was very much I will be in the top six I I will be disappointed I'll be devastated if I'm not in the top six and I was like I just really like to scrape in the top 10 and I realized looking back if it had been a, a top eight that got so on the in cone of the top ten get that get the the wooden ball which everyone wants. If it had been the top eight, I, I'm I'm fairly convinced I would have come eighth. If it had been top twelve, I'm fairly convinced I would have come twelfth. Um, which is is quite interesting how your beliefs can can inhibit you without even realizing it, and how you a you you often achieve what you aim for 
rather than perhaps best, better than, than you might have been able to do. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. And I know you've done a lot of work on this and I'm really interested in the power of the stories we tell ourselves. So for example, when you were having that first race and and you were having this, oh, I'm going to come, you know, a close second. And then eventually gave yourself permission to overtake her. Were you conscious? Were you aware that the story you were telling yourself, the belief you had about not being able to overtake her was not based in reality? No, and I don't, I think, um, I think compared to a lot of people that become professional athletes, I, I didn't have that competitive background. So I had, you know, as I said, I came last and then I'd done nothing. I didn't have that, that experience of, of putting myself on the line as a, as an athlete. And actually when I think about my, um, my age group races, quite often if I came off the bike in the lead, and there was someone who I thought was a better runner than me, I would be literally running along, jogging almost, waiting, looking at my shoulder, waiting for them to overtake me, breathing a sigh of relief, and then thinking, right, I can relax now, which is, a, you know, a ridiculous way to race, because I, who knows? And, and and one of the, I remember one of the best races I did as an amateur was um, was completely by surprise. I was in the lead off the bike, um, and I'd, I'd left my my run time on the bike, and I I almost turned back to get it. You know, I was a minute down the road. I was so close to running back a minute to collect this run timer. You know, my my like speed thing, um, and I didn't. And I ran probably thirty seconds a mile quicker than I would have done had I been wearing that run run timer because I would have said I can only run whatever seven minute miles, whatever it was, six minute thirty, whatever. But actually, by not having it, I just ran as hard as I could, and I ran so much quicker. And, and that was really insightful as well. That um, what you tell yourself you can do, you you will only achieve that if you don't let yourself believe that there may be more, or, or just yeah. experiment with what what might be possible. And those stories we tell ourselves, they're so pervasive throughout life. Whether it be I'm sociable, I'm confident, I can get that job, I can't get that job, I deserve this, I don't deserve that. And like you said, in hindsight, 
it's often there whirring in the background and we're not even kind of aware of it. And I know you've done a lot of work in bringing it to the surface and then challenging it and saying, actually, to what degree is this true? Where is the evidence? So can you, yeah, can you just talk a little bit about challenging the, those self-limiting beliefs, those stories that you had around yourself as a competitor and how that can be applied in any other area of life? So I'm quite a, log- a logical and rational person um, and actually a lot of my thought processes were quite irrational and the, and the instinctive processes I have are still quite irrational. Like, you know, I might have, I might be looking at a start list and I might have beaten every single girl on the start list. Yeah, I would say, well, I only beat her because she had a bad day or it was a fluke or I just got lucky. Um, and, you know, I might have had string after string after string after good results, yet I'd still be turning up at a, you know in race week thinking yeah what I, I'm not going to be anywhere in this field they're all amazing and and Helen did quite a lot of work with me just helping me challenge that by even doing really simple things like writing down my previous race results and 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 saying do you realize you've won eight races in a row or whatever I'm making up the numbers but they can't all be flukes and um even I think for me, as a rational person, writing down and I, you have to write it. For me, I have to write it down to make it to make it real. That's quite a good way of challenging completely irrational thought processes. So, in terms of bringing these the stories and the beliefs to the surface, and then you know, in your case, sitting down, writing down, looking for evidence. How could someone apply that in everyday life to a belief they have, maybe about themselves? You know, I'm not a good person, or whatever. Um, and do you think you could have done it without the help of Helen? Um, when, so Helen and I, as about a bit of background, Helen is a sports psychologist. She, she swims with me or swam with me. And I realised that when I was swimming, I was always just telling myself, I can't make those times. I can't do this. I can't do that. And she kind of nervously suggested, have you ever thought about doing some work um, on, on, on your, your self-talk? And I was like, no, my mind's my strongest asset. I don't need to do this. I'm really, and, and anyway, we, we eventually, we did it. And um, I, I grew to treat it like a, almost like a training session. So that in race week, I would, I would factor in my psychological preparation um, in exactly the same way that I'd factor in my training. And I had a, a, a mental prep for race week um that I used and I realized it's simple for, it was silly things like watching well not silly but watching videos of my previous races writing down the good training sessions that I'd done picking a training partner for a, a key session that week who would reinforce that I was fit so I, you know I had a few people that I could call on who were who I I respected and and if I could ride with them then that was a, a positive validation um, I did things like you know fact I would timetable in a, a, a night off thinking about it where I'd go out for dinner and I would make myself go out for dinner with friends and forget about the race and um and then yeah on, on uh, uh, social media kind of thing so there are loads of things that I used to do but I, I actually break them down I had it in a timetable exactly as I had my my training plan that I'd write myself um and I think by making it a, a an actual activity rather than just some vague thoughts that you might have on a run or a bike it, it becomes more powerful um, can you do it on your own? Yes, I 100% think you can. Um, you, you might need some guidance as to exactly what you're trying to work on and, and what you're trying to, what beliefs you're trying to counter. So, for example, I think um, like everyone knows someone who's a real glasses half empty type. You know, yeah. kind of woe is me. My life's really kind of rubbish. Um, 
and ignoring all the good stuff and thinking a lot of it's like automatic and conditioned and just is repetitive one day to the next. So spending time, first of all, becoming aware of the self-talk that is repetitive and automatic, then actually spending time like what you've done, writing it down, looking for evidence. Is this actually true? And then doing that habitually over time so it becomes a habit. You can actually retrain the way you think. And I guess that's the idea behind things like people talk about gratitude diaries, for Mm, example. Yeah. You know, getting a new habit in place. What they say, was it like 66 days or something like that on average to get a new habit in place? So you were applying it on, on the bike in terms of your performance saying, oh, I can't reach this time. But you can apply that same process to any other self-defeating self-talk that's going on just by okay bringing it into awareness challenging it spending time working on it and then habituating it absolutely and I can um so I, I I've done a few talks about um exercising cancer at, at conferences and um one of the the biggest ones I did was um at the UK breast oncology meeting and they invited me along and I said yes and it was in London I, I had in my head that it was going to be 30 people and the start of my talk, I'd, um, I'd put some really cheesy music and I was planning on getting them all up to do a bit of exercise, but, you know, one minute kind of high intensity exercise stuff. And I walked into this room and it was in this really posh hotel in London and there were maybe 300 people. They'd been there all day. And I, I just I, I just remember thinking, I can't do this. I can't possibly do it. And I remember sitting there and there was some other talk and I, I, I had to do, I obviously didn't write it down, but quite use quite a lot of self-talk to give myself the guts to get up on that stage. And it turned out it was brilliant. And, and actually it woke them all up and it, it was, but it was one of the, one of the things that I just most recently, you know, I cannot do that. Oh my God, what the hell was I thinking? Um, to give myself the confidence and I guess remind myself that it had worked in smaller audiences and that I believed in it and that there was, you know, there was factual evidence that a bit of blood flow in a, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon, the conference would do people good and um, that I was confident enough. I could make myself confident because it only works if, you know, if I'd not gone up there pretending that I didn't have care in the world, it, it wouldn't have worked. And, and yeah. yeah, I remember sitting down pretending to listen to this talk before me actually in my mind doing a lot of self-talk about how the hell I was going to do this. (laughs) How long did it take you then to get good at at getting a handle on your self-talk to instill it as a habit and get good at it? I don't know. I I think it's just something that you you work on every time you make a decision and and I, I would still say that my natural instinct is to to doubt myself and 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 think that I'm not good enough when someone approaches me and says do you want to do I always feel a bit kind of you know why do they want to talk to me rather than you know I think that's quite normal though isn't it I mean like our brains are wired to negativity the whole point of our brains being wired to negativity is like on the lookout for danger because ultimately they just the most important thing is to survive so the more kind of paranoid you are the more likely historically you would have been to survive so we've all got that negative bias yeah, and I still sometimes have to conscious. Well, I, I often have to consciously take the, those thoughts away. I mean, I guess even like in you know, the example I just said, I've entered a triathlon, and um, 
uh, it's Helvellyn. It's it's in the you run up Helvellyn at the end, and you know I, I haven't trained as a triathlete. I'm fit, but I've I've retired. Um, there are you know lots of people I'm sure will be like, oh, Lucy's coming out of retirement. I'm not at all. It's just a race that I want to do. I've got this itch to do something. I've got some friends doing it, but originally when I when someone said do you want to do it and I was like oh that sounds amazing and then I was like you can't you're retired um you haven't trained for it and and all those I it wasn't a really a conscious thing but it was almost it's almost now subconscious well that might be what you think but actually there's all these reasons why you can do it and you really want to do it and there's zero reason not to do it um but that's almost it's almost kind of happens automatically now so it's making the automatic conscious and then making the positive or whatever it may be a bit more automatic. Yeah, I think that's right. Making the, oh, which way around? But for example, <laughs> if it's, you know, if it's, I remember when it was, I was training really hard and I'd go out for my runs around the ring road in Nottingham after work and it was wet and all you wanted to do, it was late, you'd clinic it over and you just want to be at home with, a, you know, your, your dinner. Um, on the sofa and, and you know I'd be leaving work chuntering to myself about how miserable this was and how I didn't want to be doing it but I could then very easily just and I, it was it was it was a conscious thing but so I had to make myself do it and almost say yeah but Lisa you could be in that oncology ward not able to do this and and yeah. tell myself and that's again you can check yeah you can change how you view something so your alarm goes off in the morning and you think oh I just want to stay in bed but you can then tell yourself, well, actually, look at the sun. You're going to have this amazing run. You're going to really, you know, 10 minutes into the run, you're going to be so happy that you're out of bed. You can change Yeah, you it. can re-script stuff in the moment as well as, like, on a more long-term basis, basically. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, and I think that's one of the biggest things that sports can teach you um, because you you often only find that you can re-script things from being in those really dark places that you get in, yeah. in sports events or or challenges or whatever but then you can take that into normal life and you know like clinic yesterday we were sitting in this room it was probably about 35 degrees there was a tiny little fan we were you know doing all these phone calls it was miserable and it's very easy to get we were running an hour and a half behind I'd literally you know it's very easy to get built up on all the negatives or you can think of that you know you can turn it around into into lots of positives but it takes a lot of a lot of work it takes mental power or mental mm. energy to do that you have to consciously do it it doesn't just yeah. happen and like you say i mean i've never done um you know endurance sports like you have but if i go for a run i quite enjoy that you know the voice when it starts chuntering up going oh your legs hurt oh this hurts stop oh slow down and you know the more you do it the more you're like oh actually that it, it's not me saying that there's just some voice wittering away in my head and I have a choice whether or not to to engage with it yeah I mean, yeah and I I, I still I, still, I was cycling up to Scotland off-road the last my holiday like the last couple of weeks and we had some some truly miserable days <laughs> but you know epic at the same time with you know horrendous weather and I I yeah, I, I can. Uh, there were times that there were never, there was never a minute, even though there were times, plenty of times where it was miserable, I was exhausted. There was never a minute that I didn't want to be there. And a lot of it, I, I do remember one one day we had to do the last two hours on the road because we were just stuck. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty crazy and running out of light and everything. But it was miserable. But I remember thinking, these are the days that you remember. This is when you feel alive, you know, when you're most out of your comfort zone. They're the days that they do. They make you feel alive. And if you're stuck in an oncology bed, 
um, or, you know, who knows what's going to happen with COVID in the winter. I, I knew as I, as I was in that misery that these memories would sustain me if lockdown comes back. I'd have that being completely out of my comfort zone that will get me through the winter, whatever happens. Hopefully I'll, I'll have lots more adventures in the winter. But if I don't, I've had those. I've been that close to, to being empty and that's those memories go a long way. Yeah, it's just the perspective you take. And clearly the work that you do with oncology, with people who are being faced with the most difficult things you can really go through, that's clearly changed your outlook to be grateful, to understand that life is shorter. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I think I said it at the start that seeing how humans deal with the most impossible situations is, it, it, it can be so sad, um, but it's, it's also so life affirming. And I, I, I think, um, I mean, I work with a lot of young patients. Um, so, so I treat sarcomas and, and testicular cancers and a lot of younger, have a lot of younger patients. So kind of 18 to 20, 25, whatever. Um, and I think that's been the hardest thing about COVID for me is watching them, particularly the ones who haven't got much time, seeing COVID stop them do what they would normally do with it. And, and seeing people, because it's seeing people who, who take every single opportunity to live life, have that opportunity taken away from them in their last few months um, because of COVID has, I found it really heartbreaking and, and I've got very angry on their behalf. Interestingly, most of them haven't been that angry. They, they've dealt with it, um, which again, just shows the, the power of the, of, of the human spirit. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm continually amazed by, by how such young people can deal, and their families, but how they, they can be so mature and, and make such difficult decisions that are, that are right for them. Um, and yeah, it's incredibly powerful when you see that every day. It's very hard not to appreciate you know, being able to be well enough to get up at six and go and run with the sun coming up on a glorious day. Um, and when you are sitting sweating in an oncology clinic without any water or whatever, it's very easy to remind yourself that actually you're pretty lucky to be sitting in the clinic doing the clinic rather than someone at the end of the phone waiting for their phone call that's three hours late to tell them their cancer's got worse. Yeah, all about perspective and, and stories that we tell ourselves, isn't it? Um, so you set up... Well, you co-founded 5K Your Way, Move Against Cancer. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But something I saw that you you wrote that I thought was interesting was that commonly healthcare professionals aren't great at looking after themselves. And uh, a guy I know who's a psychoanalyst who was brought in to do a project with the NHS, he said the same to me, that, that caring professions, often the people within them are wonderful at looking after others and not so good at looking after themselves. And then you've spoken obviously about sport and elite sport to some degree being selfish because you know you're doing it for yourself you're just trying to make your time a little quicker or whatever it may be I'm interested to know what you what you think having experienced both those extremes and what that says about the importance of you know uh, of of looking after yourself as well as the importance of looking after others yeah so I think um I think, firstly, being a professional triathlete, I loved it, full-time athlete. Um, I had two and a half years. It was incredible, but it's it's so much harder than people realise, um, having your whole life based around just making yourself quicker. Um, and I, I really struggled. Um, I talked a little bit about the pressure, but I also really struggled with the fact that I felt like it was all a bit pointless and it was all felt very selfish and, you know, you're not – 
you're not doing anything that makes a difference to anybody apart from you. And particularly when you're injured, you're not sure whether you're going to be able to race. And, you know, I guess for everybody now through COVID, everything's not happened. I, I really struggle with what is the point of me doing all this? Why am I doing it? What's it going to achieve other than making me better and quicker as an athlete? So I think for me, when I went back to work, um, I, I suddenly had that balance in my life. And, and A, I really valued every minute that I had to train. And I, it was very rare that I resented it because it was, it was far more strict at the time. Um, but also I felt like I had some, some purpose in my life. I was doing something useful that benefited other people. Um, I felt valued. I felt valuable. Um, and that, to me, gave me a balance that I, I, I didn't didn't have as a full-time athlete and I guess you know learning from all the people that I see at work every day in terms of their you know their suffering was also really powerful um so I think for me balance is is really important and I I think for, probably for a lot of younger athletes actually I think um having having some kind of avenue of sports is 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 really helpful and, and important in terms of healthcare professionals, um, yeah, we are renowned for not, not looking after ourselves. Um, and there's a huge amount of obesity in the NHS. Um, when I go and kind of talk to the, the kind of cancer nurses about exercise and physical activity and I ask them how many do 30 minutes of exercise three, five, three times a week, there's, you know, there's very few of them. And, and um diet I mean it's impossible to get good food in the hospital it's you know it's a panini if you're lucky and from the hospital kind of coffee shop so um yeah healthcare professionals generally don't look after themselves we're probably I can imagine having a breast lump and kind of just telling myself it was nothing and then ending up presenting far too late and I think a lot of doctors would be in the same situation without you know subconsciously perhaps um <clears throat> but I hope that 5k your way can um, so 5k away against cancer encourages anyone affected by cancer so patients their loved ones their friends their families to walk jog run cheer or volunteer at park runs on the last saturday of every month and um seeing some of the healthcare professionals kind of get involved has been really really rewarding and, and seeing them discover exercise and the positive effect it can have on their lives is um is really yeah it's it's really powerful and um yeah it's one of the one of the things that's, that makes you really happy as someone then who does have that balance between meeting your own needs and wants and what you want to do while also getting your purpose from from helping others and contributing to the well-being of others like what advice would you have generally speaking for for getting that balance between yourself and other people so i i still i think you can be at work 50 hours 60 hours a week and be a, a 6 out of 10 doctor or if they're really honest with themselves, you could be at work 30 hours a week and be a nine out of 10 doctor. And what is better? What makes me happy? Lots of things. Riding my bike, fresh air, seeing friends, doing something that I feel is helping people, whether that be 5k away or seeing patients in clinic. What makes me unhappy is, is doing an average job and being an average doctor. So by working five days, I could see, say, 20 more patients, but I wouldn't be doing I'd be an average doctor for, for them whereas I could I could see fewer patients do it really well perhaps benefit more people through 5k away etc and then then the other avenue that Ed talks about I think is the kind of 
I can't remember how he classified it, but you know, the, the money that what pays for rent, what pays for bills, and, and obviously you have to factor in the maths around that. But generally speaking, the more you work, the less you get paid per hour because it's all taxed anyway. So that again is a bit of a no brainer as long as you've got, you know, you have to have enough money and be lucky enough to have enough money to make those decisions. Um, but I think if a lot of people sat down and, and wrote down what makes them happy and, and how they can get that balance of what makes them happy from they're doing stuff for themselves and also doing stuff for other people. Because generally, most people do get happy by doing stuff for other people. Certainly, that's what I was missing as a full-time athlete. I wasn't getting that, and, and I realised that. So by meeting your own needs, you could be better there for other people. Yeah, that's very very well put. I like that. <laughs> Excellent. Quickly, Lucy, because we, we're just going to wrap it up now, but in terms of your 5K Your Way, which is you know encouraging people who have cancer to consider exercise as a way to be healthier through their treatment and after, I mean, that's about right, is it? Yeah, it's about um, encouraging and empowering people to, to take part in physical activity, but also the, the peer support network um, of, of being outside in the fresh air with other people who get what it's like to have cancer. That's it in a nutshell. www.5kuaway.org. And what struck me about it as well is with COVID, I've read reports that lots of people have given up smoking, for example, and um, what you're prescribing in terms of exercise could be of real benefit to people who are wanting to um, improve their immunity with regards to this particular pandemic as well. That's definitely true. And I, I take cancer out of the equation. I think the get fit for winter kind of slogan is really, really important. And it's that, you know, people are changing their lives because of COVID in terms of social distancing, but arguably by getting themselves fit, they are going to be more robust if they do get it. And, and I think that's, yeah, that's a message that needs to be pushed as much as possible because it's probably the only thing that people can do rather than locking themselves away to minimise the risk of getting kind of seriously unwell if they did get yeah. it. Are you concerned about winter and COVID? Yeah, I am, but who knows which way it's going to go. Um, obviously, I hope it won't become a problem, um, but I, I suspect probably it will. I, I, don't, I kind of don't see how it, it can't not unless the virus just mutated to a, a milder version that's... We'll see. But that, you know, that's what I've said to, I've, I've said to, I've actually used these words, I've said to my mum, live right now like you've got cancer because we don't know what, what's coming in the winter. And if you make memories now, and, and now is, you know, it's a pretty safe time, make memories now, do fun stuff now. Those those memories, if it does get tough, will sustain you through the winter, but, but not taking this opportunity that we've got at the moment with, you know, the sun shining and relatively low levels of virus and, and restaurants and things open. I, I think is silly so I, I'm really trying to encourage everyone to to make the most of this time so that you know who knows like we said all along who knows what's coming tomorrow so make the most of, of fun times whilst we have them a lovely sentiment Lucy uh, listen <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the show I really appreciate it oh well thank you very much and I love listening to your podcast so oh, great it. work <laughs> thanks very much for listening to this episode of don't turn with the score I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening and if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.